Hello, it is 1.30 a.m. in New York, 7.30 a.m. in Johannesburg, and 12.30 p.m. in Bangkok. Welcome to the Expat Happy Hour. This is Sunday Shenander Bean from SundayBean.com, and I'm a solution-oriented coach and intercultural strategist for individuals and organizations. And I am on a mission to help you adapt and succeed when living abroad and get you through any life transition. Now is about the time when international schools around the world are celebrating International Day. It might look different in each school, but it's inevitable that our children with binational identity or passports are forced to choose one flag to walk behind in the parade, or they're forced to choose one type of clothing or food that will represent their national identity that day. I get it. The spirit of International Day is to celebrate diversity and bring everyone's culture to the table and celebrate how we recognize our own culture through national flags, food, clothing, and who knows what else. And I love that. I love that idea of celebrating diversity. At the same time, I've caught myself wondering, is this too good to be true? You know, in international schools, is it really that everybody is on the same playing field, that that we're all mixed up? I mean, I see the diversity of my children's classrooms, and I want to think that these international schools are somehow outside of the scope of geopolitics and hierarchies of race, culture, class, and even gender. (sighs) That's what I want to think. And I know the schools I've been to have worked really hard to make that true. But at the same time, I don't think we're resistant to the hierarchies of social dynamics and global dynamics from entering in the school gates. It is my absolute pleasure to have an anthropologist with us today who specializes in observing third culture kids. Danao Tanu is an anthropologist and the author of the book, Growing Up in Transit, The Politics of Belonging at an International School. Fascinating, isn't it? Her whole PhD dissertation is based on that. And this is my favorite part. To write it, she went back to high school for a full year as a 30-something-year-old adult and collected data by observing third culture kids in what you could call their natural environment of an international school. Now, I know not all third culture kids go to international school, but we're using this as one context to look at what third culture kids experience. In the book, Danao gives us a peek into the way the hierarchies of race, culture, and class shape popularity, friendships, and even romance on campus through the eyes of the youth themselves. And she joins us today to share some of those insights. And to be honest, some of them might surprise you. Some of them, 
may even make you feel defensive. But stick around and stay open to what the research is uncovering right in our very schools that your children might be attending or where you teach or where you're the administrator. You've just heard the impressive bio of our guest today, Danao Tanu, and the work that she's doing for our understanding, adding depth around the third culture, identity, global citizenry, and her most recent book, Growing Up in Transit, The Politics of Belonging at an International School, helps us see things in a brand new way. And that is my intention in having Danao here today. And it is with my great pleasure to welcome you to Expat Happy Hour. Hi, thanks a lot, Sunday. It's, it's an honor to be here. Thank you so much for inviting me. And I know you're on the go, so I appreciate your time. I really appreciate the time. You're calling in from Australia today, aren't you? Yes, I am. I'm in Perth, Australia. It's a sunny day. Wonderful. So listen, I am really curious, before we dive into more in terms of the third culture kid identity and what that means, global citizenry, can you tell us a bit about you? I mean, you have a PhD in this direction. How did you come to study and question global citizenry and third culture kid identity? Um, Well, I had been like thinking about doing a PhD for about three years before I actually started and couldn't decide on a topic. And then there was this professor that I um, met and she said, well, what makes you angry? And I'm like, well, the question where you come from. And she said, well, do it on that. And I was like, is that how you decide on a PhD topic? (laughs) And and she said, well, if you're angry about it, it'll get you through the five years that you need to spend on this thing. Mm. And I'm like, oh, okay. And so that's sort of how I got and stopped, you know, stumbled into the topic of third culture kids. Um, I started looking into that. So and, the question, where yeah. are you from, makes you angry. I think some listeners here can identify with that. I don't know if they would, if they would say angry. I think a lot of people are stumped by the question. Um, so I'm going to make you angry. Where are you from? <laughs> Tell our listeners where you're from. Tell us your story. Well, I'm fine with the question when people actually want to know. Mm-hmm. It's when they, you know, ask the question and then you give them the answer and then they're like, you know, that wasn't the answer I was looking for. But um, so I was born in Canada, but my dad is Indonesian Chinese. So Indonesian nationality, Chinese ethnicity. And my mother is Japanese. Um, and so my citizenship is Canadian, but when I was three and a half, we moved to Indonesia and I went to a local school for a year and then switched to an international school until grade five. So I finished grade five um, and then went to Japan for a year to a public school. That was hard. Oof. And then came back to the yeah, came back to the international school thinking I was going to be back home. But then I found that I had become quite Japanese. Mm. Um, and so I had a hard time fitting back into the international school. Yeah. Um, and then what? Um, in last year of high school was in Canada. Uh, sorry, in Singapore at an international mm-hmm. school there, and then moved around quite a bit. And yeah, the, I mean, I can't even imagine going from from the local scene to international scene back to a local scene and so many identities. This is something that I think about for my own kids. My kids are Swiss and American, and they've been in international school 
most of their lives. And I'm worried about, although culturally we're very Swiss, you know, in many ways, I worry about them going to a local school school and actually feeling resentful to be in a Swiss school and around, you know, everything Swiss 24 seven. I worry about that. So how did you navigate that? I mean, was it, how, how was that for you? Um, well, the first, like the Indonesian local school, I don't even remember, but the Japanese one was hard because I was a tomboy. And, mm. but in Japan, the gender, like, you know, boys and girls don't play together. So I uh, couldn't mm. play with the boys, didn't want to play with the girls because there are all these like popularity hierarchies going on that I didn't really like. Mm. Um, so that was really hard. Um, I ended up not having friends at school, though I had friends at church. And it wasn't until I came across um, the book, Third Culture Kids, Growing Up Among Worlds, um, which I think a lot of our, your listeners can, can identify with, um, that I, like, I just broke down and cried. There was a little article, actually not the book. She wrote a little article about unresolved grief mm-hmm. for tckid.com that was run by Bryce Royer. And yep. when I read that um, article about unresolved grief, I just broke down and cried. And... Up until then, the pain from fifth grade, like every time I remembered fifth grade in Japan, because mm-hmm. um, I had to repeat fifth grade, um, it hurt. Like mm-hmm. there's just this pang would, you know, this pain would come. But after that, you know, reading that article, breaking down and crying, it just left. And now I can remember it and it's no problem. Wow. That's beautiful. Like you have a name for it. There's two things that are going on with me. One is as a parent, um, we've gone through some tough transitions because I had to pull my kids out of West Africa within 10 days and we went to Switzerland and our family was separated by a continent and put a kid in a second semester school situation. You know, there was some tough stuff that happened. And as a parent, when you're doing that, you know, I'm like, ooh, second grade was hard for our family, you know, but I wasn't the second grader. I was the parent. So you're like, whew, we're past second grade. Now, you know, now we're in sixth grade. So this idea is you, as a parent, you got through that grade for your kid and now you're moving on. But what I'm hearing from you is even though as a child who's experiencing that, you you might have gone through that and or have moved on, but there could be some residue from that experience that holds on tight and you might not even share that with your parents did you share that with your parents um oh good question i don't i I think they knew that i was struggling because towards the end of the year my mom noticed that i would get a stomach ache every time i had to leave for school and she Mm -hmm. said you weren't lying because you looked like you really had a stomach ache but it wasn't like you know I, i didn't have any problems um, so I was lucky that we left after the year. So I think they, like my parents were aware that I was struggling. But were they aware that years later you kept that experience in your body? Probably not because I probably didn't really understand it That's either. And yeah. Yeah. I think it's so fascinating. It's so fascinating to be the one who experiences it and the one who is parenting uh-huh. the child who is experiencing it. Um, so thank you for sharing that story. And it's so optimistic when you hear that once you had a name for it, that it was you were able to have that leave mm. your body and then 
see it in a different way. Um, so I, I think that's an experience a lot of TCKs have, third culture kids have, when they discover the term third culture kid. It's like, oh, there's the name. And I'm going to read it um, out for the, I still can't believe people don't know this term, but I always encounter people who don't know it already. So I'm going to share it now. The, I, the definition, according to David Pollock of a third culture kid, is a third culture kid is a person who spent a significant part of his or her developmental years outside the parents' culture. The TCK frequently builds relationships to all of the cultures while not full having full ownership in any. Although elements from each culture may be assimilated into the TCK's life experience, excessive belonging in relationship to others of similar background. So that's what we have from the, you know, the most recent volume of Third Culture Kids Growing Up Among Worlds. I, I, actually, this might not be the most recent. It might be the old Win Warren copy that I have in my desk. Um, but that can do the same thing. Like people read it, they feel uh, validated. This is my experience. Now there's a name for it. But what I know from your work, it's not that simple, is it? Um, no, because I think there's a lot of layers um, to the TCK experience. Um, there are many things mm -hmm. that we share, but there are also experiences that are different depending on where basically where are you from <laughs> in a way right um right you know what what language your parents speak at home um what they look like as in race or ethnicity um what culture they practice at home and how that's the same or different from the school that you go to um a lot of those things can affect um the experience so for example in my case um my like i spoke four languages right so english indonesian japanese Chinese and the three I spoke at home and then English was at school and I had moved <laughs> around yeah. so I had moved around so in a way like I fit the profile of a TCK perfectly but when I went mm -hmm. to the international school I it, you know, I hear a lot of TCK saying international school was like home and it's like it's the place where I fit in so well but for me the international school itself was a bit of a struggle because um, the culture was so different from what I experienced at home. And right. yeah, so when I read the Third Culture Kid book, there was a lot of things that I could identify with, rootlessness, restlessness, et cetera, et cetera. And so in that way, it was like a godsend, like I really appreciated the book. But then I could see that there were experiences, and I'm, I'm talking about the, I think I read the second edition. So the third edition mm -hmm. had a lot more in it. Um, but when I read the second edition, I thought, you know, there's a part of my experience at the international school that's not in the book. Um, and that's sort of why I did my um, PhD. And that experience is... Right. Yeah. So for like an Asian kid whose parents don't speak English or don't, speaks English as a second language, you go to school, you feel like an immigrant at the school. So mm -hmm. it's, it's an experience. Mm -hmm. It's like a second generation immigrant sort of experience. And I don't think we talk about this enough. That is why I, it, last week's episode with Isabel Min on unconscious bias, she brought that to light. Mm -hmm. I don't think we do enough to talk about that. I think that, um, and maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe because I'm from, you know, I would call it the majority culture in an international school setting. Um, a lot of the curriculum is very American, right? Um, if not European influenced, right? Like that's why I say majority identity. I think that there's a lot of white teachers happening. Like when I've seen, I've, you know, I've been, 
when I see the international schools that our family has been to, and I see where people are teaching, you know, my international school teacher friends, I think it's fair to say that if I go to an international school as a parent, my kids go there, I won't feel completely like an outsider or as an immigrant. Right. Mm -hmm. And I, I, maybe I'm wrong, but that's, that's my hunch based on what I've seen in the international school system. Um, So there's this, this hidden layer of identity and negotiation going on that people from a a majority identity don't see. And I gave the example last week with Isabel of, you know, just like something simple like the PTA, everybody bring brownies or whatever. Like, okay, brownies is a very cultural specific thing. That is so good. Right? So <laughs> That's exactly right? what I feel. Like, <laughs> Right, like I said, my example last week was like, what if someone said to bring samosas? I'd be like, I gotta Google that. Like, do I have the equipment at home to make it? Like, how do I do that? And those are the little things that we take for granted. And that is why I invited you today because there's there are things going on that either we don't have a name for or we don't see. And I'm going to share my story um, of how I encountered you at FIGT. You did a lightning round um, at FIGT, which is basically like a a fast TED talk Uh um, around your research of growing up in transit. And my experience in the audience, I was really interested in your work because you talked about the things that were going on in the school that created a dynamic and my my summary please you know correct me after i'm done telling the story of the details but th- what i remember from it is you witnessed things that were going on where kids that were let's say of asian identity were not we were were being separate and being seen as separate for motives that were different from what was really going on that there was actually this layer of hidden racism unconscious right racism Um, that was going on. And at the end of your speech, you said, I spent eight years of my life, you know, in this research situation in the schools to come to this conclusion to uncover this, this racism. And thank God I had Kleenex with me because I was like, you know, teary, slimy mess. Um, Because what hit me in the gut Uh was, was this probably the side of the social injustice side of me of like, why you? Why are you the one who has to do the research, right? Why is it always the people who are of minority identity or disadvantaged in a system have to dedicate eight years of their life or their entire life to uncovering hidden bias, hidden racism, stereotypes, like this injustice? It makes me angry and it made me wonder why are there not more people with majority identities the ones who are actually participating in these systems, doing the work to expose this. So hmm. that's why I wanted you to come on. I would love to hear more. Um, I would love to hear more about your research um, and have you share that. And I'm to do that. I'm going to just share an excerpt from one of the articles that you read that you wrote from Inside Indonesia mm-hmm. about educating global citizens. And then I'm going to let you take the reins and share more about what you discovered. But what what you say in this article, you said. Despite international schools' ideology of global citizenship, students learn to internalize cultural hierarchies, meaning that students' perceptions of popularity are sometimes colored by race. So who are the popular kids, I asked a couple of seniors. Well, popularity isn't such a big deal here, but I suppose the white kids that like to sit over there are considered popular. 
Melinda answered as she pointed at the benches near the high school office. The white kids? I repeated suspiciously as I was sure they were not all, quote, white. Yeah, the white kids. Tell us more, Danelle. Um, yeah, so during my research, um, you know, there, there's a group of kids that the other kids and the kids in that group themselves would say white kids, but actually that white kid group, yes, you know, maybe half of them were what we would traditionally call white, but there was also a Pakistani kid, a kid who was half Japanese, half Australian, um, two African Americans, um, Indians, etc. So it was quite a colorful group, so so to speak. Um, but so when the students said white kids, what they meant was a culture, as in these kids were very westernized. Um, mm-hmm. And and so for example, the you know a couple two of the boys when they meet each other they'd be like hey sunshine and then they'd do all those little slap things you know shake hands whatever <laughs> that i can't understand but so secret it's, codes yes yeah, secret codes and so it's a culture that they share um whereas you know an asian kid coming from korea or like japan had just arrived and you know they may have lived in other countries but if they're not familiar with that culture they can't fit in And Mm -hmm. so I found that a lot of the kids, they really wanted to. So there was this mainstream group that was seen as international by both the teachers and the students um, or the students in the international, so-called international group. And it was always like, why does why don't the Japanese kids, the Korean kids, the Indonesian kids like join this group? And the thing is, a lot of them did try to join it. Um, and during the interviews, they would tell me, well, I, 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 you know, I tried to join and I tried to do the whole, but like, why do I have to be the one acting like an American, you know, being so, mm-hmm. um, expressive of my emotions and fling my arms out here and there. And which to a kid who was used to that, it's not a problem, but for a kid who's not used to that, it's a real burden. Um, they struggle mm-hmm. with it and it's really tiring. So she said, I don't want to come to school and feel so tired trying to act this mm-hmm. way. And yeah. I mean, let's just stop there for a second. That That is important to recognize. So this is something that children are navigating at school. You know, we ask our kids, how was your day? What did you learn? Mm-hmm. We don't find out. Yeah, mom, today, you know, it was exhausting because I was trying to wave my arms around emphatically like the, you know, the other kids, but I just, it doesn't feel like me. Like these are things our kids don't share with us. Mm. Yeah. These are levels. This is, and these are things I'm guessing are not even conscious that kids are navigating this, you know, this presence of a dominant culture here, like you said, was Westernized. It was labeled as white. Um, and kids who do not fit into that genre or not from those cultural practices are put under pressure to to be popular. I mean, that's like a middle school thing, right? Everybody wants to be popular, <laughs> be part of the group. Everyone wants to be liked. I mean, I'm 42. I still want to be liked. Right? <laughs> <laughs> right? Like, let's be honest, yeah, yeah. everybody. We don't get over this. Um, yeah. And these are things our kids are navigating. Mm-hmm. Our kids are navigating and navigating successfully with ease at the expense of others or are navigating with difficulty and are being put unconsciously or consciously in an outgroup. 
Um, yeah, well, I think, so the kids I was doing, um, researching, they were high school kids, so they were a lot more expressive than probably your sixth grader. Um, mm -hmm. yeah, and some of them, you know, they either struggle, but eventually they've tried, the kids are ingenious, right? They, they find solutions to this. And some of the kids, the solution was to hang out with others who spoke their language or could understand their communication style. And this doesn't, doesn't mean that they always hang out with the Japanese or the like Koreans with the Koreans, Japanese with the Japanese. And in that particular school, because it was located in Indonesia, this was particularly clear with the Indonesian kids. So the mainstream students and the teachers would be like, oh, the Indonesian kids, they always self-segregate. They never hang out with anybody else. So, you know, so I went to hang out with these Indonesian kids to find out what was going on. And when I asked around and like, you know, I got to know them, it turned out the so-called quote unquote Indonesian kids were constituted of like two Korean kids, two Taiwanese kids, a couple of Filipinos, and then one who was half British, half Indonesian, another was half Thai, half Indonesian, another was oh. half Japanese, half Indonesian. And it was a really mixed group. Wow. And you know, I'm going to pull, I'm going to, I'm going to interrupt you there and yeah. pull out for, for those who are teachers in international schools to really challenge, um, challenge yourself to think about what categories you use when you see your kids, right? Those kids, I'm, I am very sure those international school teachers, um, were, were not conscious that this was a label that didn't match the diversity of the group and their intentions were not bad. But it, mm. it has an implication for those kids, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. Because um, I think when those in authority don't see it and don't support it, and then obviously all the other students don't really see it or support it either. And so it makes it harder for them to come out of that right. group. Or um, Yeah, so I was really surprised. And so it's the same as a white kids group. You know, they're not all white. And the Indonesian mm -hmm. kids... They're not all Indonesian, but they did speak, a lot of them spoke some degree of Indonesian, but not, not all of them were fluent in it. And you know what, what's interesting that you said is you use the words, they self-segregated, right? Like <laughs> as if it was their intention initially to remove themselves from other kids, but that's not such a fair analysis, is it? Um, yeah, no. Because um, a lot of those kids, they really wanted to join the so-called mainstream mm -hmm. group. And yeah. some of them have claimed that they've tried and yeah. they couldn't. And then there were some that say, well, I used to, you know, some of them are what we call lifers. You know, they stay at the same mm -hmm. international school for a long time. And they would point out and say, oh, I used to be friends with that American kid who's in, now in the other group. Um, but like, we just not don't hang out anymore. Mm -hmm. And so it, it wasn't just um, the culture, but it was also the way that kids come and go at the international school mm -hmm. um, in the way that um, so some kids, they, they'll be like, oh, I used to have American, French, blah, blah, blah friends. And then um, they all left in one academic year at the end of mm -hmm. one academic year. And I had to find new friends. And when the newcomers, like the new Americans, French and whatever came up, couldn't talk like I just couldn't relate to them and so mm. I've ended up in the Indonesian group um, and then the other ones who used to be friends with kids who are still at the same school but in the other group would say they just kind of drifted apart and part of it is because you know you end up your life trajectory kind of changes with your 
passport, I suppose, like what universities you'd go to. Um, you know, so the Korean kids, a lot of them would end up going to a Korean university because it's just so expensive to go overseas or, you know, that's where they have a better chance of going to a good university, et cetera. So there's a lot of different things going on. Mm-hmm. And also it might be that their parents are friends with each other, yep. which means that they have a lot more opportunity to see each other, right? like to see other Korean kids or other Indonesian kids. Um, and so it's not just they want to self-segregate and they're not international enough. That's just not what's going on. Right. Because if you if you say they want to self-segregate, what do you make that mean? Like, what do you make that mean about those kids? And that's what I think is so important about labels. Can you share a little bit about from the research? I remember in your lightning talk, you talked about mm-hmm. math and kids with their computers and sitting next to each other. You gave an example in your talk. Can you share ah, more yeah. about that dynamic that was going on? Yeah. So with, in my research, I'd hang out with the kids, but I also go to classes. And there was one particular class. It was an economics class, I think. I said, can I sit in? I asked the teacher. The teacher was like, yeah, cool. You know, they're all third country kids. Oh, but those two Korean kids, like, they always sit together. I don't know. Um, but there was a sense of judgment um, mm-hmm. towards the kids. And anyway, so I sat at the very back of the class, and which happened to be behind these two Korean kids. And I noticed that you know, over several days that the one of them, the girl would come and first thing she does in class when she reaches class is to open her electronic dictionary, put it on one side, get another dictionary, paper dictionary, put it on another side and just set things up. And you could tell, and I've seen her in other classes as well, and she's just constantly nervous in mm-hmm. these classes because she can't speak English very well. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the other Korean kid who would come and sit next to her, he's completely fluent in English. He's been in international school since like first grade. Um, and he would sit next to her. And I noticed during class that once in a while, the girl would lean into the guy and say something. Mm-hmm. And so the guy would whisper something back. And after a while, I realized that what they were doing was she would be asking about vocabulary. Mm-hmm. Like she, there was words that she could not understand that was being spoken in class. And he would help her. And afterwards, when I interviewed him, um, you know, I asked, like, why do you like, even though I kind of knew why they were sitting together, I wanted them to say it in their own words. So I'd ask him, like, so why do you, you know, always sit with her and blah, blah, blah. And he says, well, like, I would feel like a really bad person um, if I didn't sit next to her, knowing that she's struggling and I'm the only one in the class who can help her. Wow. Um, And so he was doing it out of a sense of community out of trying to help this girl who was struggling in class, but the teachers couldn't see this. And this is where Um, I think, I mean, this is why I think we need to have this conversation, right? This is why I think every international school teacher should have intensive intercultural communication training to challenge mm -hmm. their own interpretations. And um, I'm going to go off on a little tangent here. (laughs) And I also, I want to say like, I am also guilty of this. I'm going to say that out front. Like, even though this is what I do and what I teach, I I do this too because I have an amygdala. I have a brain. We are meant, our brains are programmed for ins and out groups. We're programmed for yeah. comfort. Like, we have to work against our biology yeah. to be better I in think, our people. <laughs> I think we're all guilty of this. I think yes. we're all guilty of this. <laughs> so I'm, I'm not coming from a holier than thou. I'm saying I understand how I do this and I want other people to understand how they do it too. I guess that's the position I'm coming from. But what I'm hearing here is from a dynamic, there's a teacher um, who sees, maybe from an individualistic culture, right? 
sees those two kids choosing to select out, right? And then maybe making it mean like, oh, the Koreans stick together, right? Maybe even using some cultural knowledge about Koreans are collectivistic and they they like to be among their own people, right? What are the assumptions that are being made or the interpretations being made? And who knows, right? I don't know this teacher. I don't know what was in their brain. And what I'm hearing from you is that when you dig a little bit deeper and you check what's really going on here, when you are observing and checking interpretation, what's going on is this student is supporting the other. This is a student who needs help from a language perspective and is being supported by someone else. And that's a different, that's a totally different energy than their self segregating. Right? Mm. Like if I teach, I, I, oh, those are the two Korean kids in the back just being Korean, right? Like that is a totally (laughs) different energy than, wow, look at that kid show up for her. Look at him sacrifice his own attention or energy and give that to her so she can succeed. Like that is a totally different interpretation. And as a teacher, I think we would evaluate those kids differently. I think we would, you know, in, integrate them differently into the classroom. Absolutely. Right. Yeah. And that, I mean, from the, yeah. inter, I'm going to pull back up from the intercultural side, this is part of, you know, the methodology of when you're working across cultures, what did you observe? Like, not what do you think about it, but what did you actually see with your eyeballs? <laughs> right. He, like you, like you did from a social anthropology perspective, she leaned in. He whispered, you went in and asked question, what's going on? And as teachers, I think that they could, you know, I'm not going to say what I think they could do because I know international school teachers work their tails off from morning until night and they're doing the best that they can every moment. So I don't want that to sound like criticism at all because I, I work with international school teachers and they are amazing. And... We Mm -hmm. all have work to do, right? Like if we could just step back for a second and go, that's what I'm noticing. I wonder what else could be going on here, right? We would, we would do our part to see it differently. Tell me what's going on for you when I, when I share that. Um, Yeah. Well, earlier you mentioned about, you know, why does it have to be the minority, the people from the minority group that has to do Mm -hmm. all this? And um in a way like that, I guess that's inevitable. You only know what you see and what you know and what you experience. Um, and so, but for example, when I went to Families and Global Transition for the first time in 2014, that's sort of what I felt going in, going, why don't they talk about all these other experiences? Mm-hmm. You know, why is it always from the English speaking white perspective? Yeah. But then when I went, I found, I heard, I can't remember who said it, but it was like, you know, we really need this diverse voice. It's just, it hasn't been our experience and we don't know how to say it. And Ruth mm-hmm. says this all the time that, you know, um, it's my first time hearing it. It's like, it's important. This is really important, but we it's not our experience. And so from that, I thought, oh, okay. So there is room for me to speak about this. Mm-hmm. It's not like people are rejecting right. it. It's just, they don't understand it. And so I think that sense of just wanting to listen and hear and being open to those other experiences, that's really important. Yeah. Um, yeah, and I think even in the, in the international schools, that would be um, just just that little thing would make a big difference, I yeah. think, in terms of the dynamics, um, just that sense of wanting to learn. Yeah. I love that. I love that. And it kind of brings tears to my eyes because it really taps into my personal desire to want to listen and to learn. 
And what I've realized in my own reflection is I can do a better job at inviting those conversations, right? And that's one of the reasons why we're having this conversation right now. Um, Mm -hmm. So for, I think one takeaway would be for people who are part of the, the minority, the majority identity to, um, to ask themselves how often they're in a position of listening or how often they invite those kind of conversations or how often they seek out the voices of others, because, you know, there's plenty of literature out there um, talking about it. And are we seeking those things out? And what I'm hearing from you is people who have a, an experience that isn't reflected in the majority, the voice that's not being heard to, to stand up and to share the voice so that others can benefit from it. Mm, mm, yeah. So that's why I'm quite grateful that you've invited myself mm-hmm. or Isabel, um, etc. And so, yeah, thank you so much. And also the other thing is um, it's not something we need to feel guilty about mm-hmm. um, because once we feel guilty, that sort of shuts the door because it's just so uncomfortable. But like we, I know, like we mentioned earlier that it's something that everybody does. We all do it. Um, mm-hmm, like yeah. that was a Sesame Street song. We're all a little bit racist. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it's not, why would I laugh at that? Like that is so absurd to even laugh. It's so absurd. I have to laugh. Um, yeah. And, and so I think often we might experience racism from one group of people, but then, yeah. you know, we do it to other people. Mm-hmm. And it's quite amazing to see that people who experience racism don't notice it when they do it to other people. Right, right. And so I think this is like we all are in a learning process totally. as long as we're sort of open to what people are saying. Mm-hmm. And I have to, I'm going to be really transparent to you and to thousands of people that are listening is, you know, there is, I feel a risk when I, as an intercultural specialist, when I come out and I share my stories uh, that are in me of my bias, right? Of my, of my otherizing, of my failure to create a bridge. I, that there is some risk there, right? Because that's what I do. And I do it because I have a human brain <laughs> that is created, <laughs> it is designed for in and out group and, um, I share those examples because if, if this is what I like love studying and love thinking about and train on, I'm passionate about, and I still mess up, mm-hmm. then what about people who aren't even thinking about it? Right. What are we doing <laughs> unintentionally? Right. This yeah, is also yeah. what you study. It's what you think about it. Right. You might catch yourself in situations as well. Um, that's why I share that because it's like, if people who are, who are passionate about this and know a lot still struggle with always doing it. What about people who aren't even thinking about it? What are we doing? You know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not sure. I don't know. That's I'm just saying, I'm just saying. Yeah. Um, so what do you think? I mean, th- I'm so you talk about don't feel guilt. I think it's the same thing. Yeah. Like why I've, what, you know, I wrote the word shame down, on a post-it note next to me when you wrote that, because that's why I shared that sometimes I feel a risk in sharing these stories because 
I don't want people to judge me, right? I don't want people to put me into a box, but I believe in the bigger picture of seeing ourselves in these dynamics, right? Not always other people, but ourselves. That's more important to me. Um, And it taps into my, I always talk about this idea of social justice. Like I, when I'm angry, it's because there's been an injustice, and so yeah. when, when these things happen, you said, don't feel guilty. It, for me, it's, it's, it taps into anger because I'm mad at the, the, not the individuals at all, or not at myself. I'm mad at the historical power dynamics and identity politics that are going on over centuries that led to this individual interaction, right? That's where I'm mad. That's where the injustice is, is these unfair power dynamics that are playing out on the global field, but are happening in on the playground of our international schools. So that's where, that's where I get on fire about stuff. And, um, you know, I follow, yeah, go ahead. uh, I could share a couple of stories of my own biases. (laughs) Yeah, Thank you. I don't want to be alone out here. (laughs) Um, So like during the research, I went to another school that was a smaller school. And so the um, uh, fees were a bit lower. And what that means is that you get a different set of students, right? Mm -hmm. Because, you know, whether or not you can afford the fees depends on whether or not you come from a developed country. Um, Yeah. And so then I uh, interviewed a Burmese student there and she was saying, you know, so at the big school, it was like all the Indonesians were complaining about, you know, uh, Japanese complaining that they're not accepted, whatever. And then you go to the smallest school and the Burmese kid is like, well, like the Indonesians really look, look down on us because like Bur- Burma, is, Myanmar is not as developed as um, Indonesia. Mm-hmm. And I thought, oh, wow, we really do this to each other, don't we? Yep. Yep. Um, yeah, there was, so there was that. And also, I think for myself, I've had to, going to families in global transition, I've had to check my own heart yep. um, in terms of being feeling a bit, uh, I found this sort of like a resistance going to FIGT, mm-hmm. um, feeling uncomfortable. And I was talking to Ruth about it. And I was like, oh, you know, but if it's just because everybody's white, that would make me quite racist too. <laughs> you know? mm-hmm. um, and so I had to sort through my own issues of feeling angry that I was left out because, um, and if you're angry, because towards a group of people, that's also like a re- re- sort of, uh, I don't know if you could call it reverse racism, but it's a prejudice. Yeah. Right? I mean, I think you judge right on except you because they're white or whatever. Right. Uh, you could you say, know? yeah, I think, I mean, I, I think it's hard to ignore that with racism, it's about unfair power dynamics. And we kind of know who has the power historically. <laughs> yeah. So I don't know if it's the same. I, I personally don't believe in uh, reverse racism because the power dynamic yeah. isn't reversed. Yeah, um, and yeah, I yeah. am, I'm really right now I'm on fire about Catrice Jackson who wrote um, antagonist advocates and allies. And she's a, she's a wonderful social justice warrior. And she really helps um, her mission right now is to help white women see how they're creating acts of microaggression or violence against women of color, consciously or unconsciously. And she's actually asking white women to stand up and say, hey, do your work. <laughs> you know, if you know the people that should be fighting for social justice are the people who are part of the problem, right? And I, I love that what, what she's doing. And that's, 
that's what inspires me and, and why, um, part of why I feel like I want to have these conversations because what she says is if you're not, if you are not physically exhausted every single day from fighting injustice, you're not doing enough. Wow. (laughs) Wow. Yeah. 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 And it's like, okay, she has a point. (laughs) So that's part of my journey. That doesn't mean it has to be other people's journeys. That's just what, what, where I'm at right now. Um, So I am, that's why I want to talk about action. What do you think? And let's just see what pops up. What can parents do? What can teachers do? What can students do to participate differently in these systems? Um, yeah, it's a tough question. I'm an anthropologist. We dissect problems really well, <laughs> but don't come up with solutions that well. But the, what I did see was, um, well, one is, as I mentioned before, to listen and to sort of want to hear the other perspective. And for example, in my book, I was quite critical of one of the staff members. Um, and then I, like, because I was so critical, I showed it to um, the um, manuscript to my book to him before it was published to see if he was okay with it. And he, he actually read it and came back to me and said, you know what, you're quite accurate. I can see it now. And so even though I was critical, having him respond that way, that my respect for him just shut up, you know, that he, he was able to hear that. Um, so that's one listening. Um, the other thing is I found that the students at the school depend, you know, there would, for example, the Japanese students, they would feel so uncomfortable in the English speaking classes, but once they go into the Japanese class, so in the English speaking classes, they would be like, like a stone, just silent, dead silent, not say a word. They go to the Japanese class because it's in their own language. They're so comfortable. They're just really cheery, talking a lot, participating a lot. It's like a different person. And so what I found, so what I felt was that um, the teachers, the ones who know how to be a cultural broker, those teachers are really important in school um, because it makes the students feel comfortable. And I'll share an interesting one. There was one teacher who was a white American and teacher, and some for some reason, all the Asian students loved hanging out in her in her classroom. And I asked the students, like, why do you ha- like hanging out in her classroom? And they're like, I don't know. I guess she understands teenagers. Like, we l- really like her. And then I went and interviewed her. And what I found out was that um, she grew up in Hong Kong, I think, going to a British school or something like that. And so she feels more comfortable hang- hearing Chinese language being spoken and being around Chinese people. And But the students didn't know this. Um, she because she looked white um and so in a way it was that her tck experience um allowed her to be a cultural broker in that school and allowed gave the students a safe space like a comfortable place and that shows like what what can administration do when they're hiring yeah you know what can they make sure that they've got teachers whether they look canadian and sound canadian on the outside you know what experiences do they have in the background that can help kids feel comfortable uh, all identities feel comfortable Mm -hmm. in that school setting and this doesn't mean you have to go you know hire somebody because of their race it's still about their credentials but also take those sort of experiences as part of the credentials i guess 
Yeah. Like do, do of, of all of the qualified people that are coming in, yeah. are we covering the identities that are present in our school? Mm. Right. Yeah. Oh my gosh. We could go <laughs> on and on and on. Yeah. Um, so I am, I, I'm looking forward to reading even more of your research. I've already started diving in um, and everything that I'm reading, I'm gobbling up. So thank you so much for the work that you're doing, the contribution you're making to our understanding and for tearing apart um, the this this thing that we want to hold on to about TCK identity and saying, yes, this is a unifying experience and it's also different. So I appreciate the work that you're doing. Where can people find you if they want to learn more? Um, yeah, where can they find you? I'm on Instagram, <laughs> Growing Up in Transit. That's the title of my book. Um, but also the yep. book is available for sale. It's, it's quite expensive. <laughs> Because it's um it's an academic book um, meant for libraries, but they've got a twenty five percent off going on right now, um because it's the publisher's anniversary sale, um very good yeah but I'm trying to work my Instagram a bit more. Mm. On Instagram. Okay. So I'll put those links in the show notes. Mm -hmm. We'll make sure that they have access to where they can get your research. Mm -hmm. um, so they can find more. And we, I might even put the article that I mentioned yeah. um, that I shared an excerpt yeah. from here too. So they can get a flavor mm -hmm. of what you're doing. Or Twitter. Thank mm -hmm. you so much for joining us on Expat Happy Hour. It's been Thank amazing so to have much. you. And I appreciate, and I hope that all of the people that are listening, um, you've taken away one core thing for yourself, for your role either as a parent, an administrator, a teacher, or just as a human for looking at our own biases and how we participate in systems that are much bigger than us, but we still are part of. Thank you so much, Sunday. Thank you so much for inviting me. It's been an honor. Thank you. So there you have it. An inside look at the dynamics that are going on in international schools. It is pretty interesting how what Danao Tanu is seeing in her research is what our guest from last week, Isabel Min, shared as her experience when she was a child. Definitely worth thinking about. What's your response? Are you feeling defensive? Like, not our school. Or are you feeling curious? Like, hmm, maybe I should ask different questions. Or are you feeling open, ready to reflect on your own categories? Because this is what this interview series has been all about. Remember, we started with Jerry Jones and Kath Brew with Unlikely Connections, where it was an invitation to look at the categories that we use when we see or don't see other people, how it stops us from creating connection, or how going through that can help us build connection. Last week's episode with Isabel Min helped us look at gently what are the unconscious biases that are going on inside of us, and how does it stop us from connecting across cultures. And this episode looks at the hidden racism that might be at play, the dynamics that are going on in geopolitics that sneak through the school gates, playing out in our lives and with our children. Okay, this is an invitation to pause, to notice, because the trickiest thing 
about unconscious bias is because it's unconscious, right? But acknowledging that it exists, saying to yourself, okay, I have bias I am not aware of. Even though we know from brain research it can see it, we aren't aware of it. Just acknowledging that we have bias helps create space to acknowledge it. Because these topics are relevant to our lives. We are participating in systems that advantage some and disadvantage others. This is worth having a conversation So if you are an international school administrator and are listening to this, please hear this as an invitation to explore the dynamics that are going on in your own school, as an invitation to have honest conversations with your teachers about how they are seeing others, as an invitation to look at your curriculum and the dynamics among the students to see what dynamics are at play. The same thing for the teachers and us parents whose children go to schools like this. And if you are someone who works directly with expats who are living international lives and are part of this international school system, these are things that we can help our clients with. These are things that are relevant in our lives, part of our identity that we are participating in and our advantage from or disadvantaged from, right? And that is what makes this honor to work with individuals all over the world so interesting because we have a role to collaborate and help others find meaning and purpose in their lives and break through whatever barriers they're facing. So if you haven't heard the news already, I announced last week that the doors are open to a brand new program called the Expat Coach Coalition, because I firmly believe that together we are stronger. The more that we share our talents with people, the more we serve our community, the more we are committed to change lives for the better and also amplify your own business in the process, we're stronger. And it's my invitation, if you serve expats, if you're a coach who's living abroad, I would love for you to check out the Expat Coach Coalition because it's just part of this opportunity to come together and do better. It is time. You've been listening to Expat Happy Hour, and this is Sunday Bean. I'll leave you with an anonymous quote. Strong today, stronger tomorrow strongest together. Um. <laughs>